Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Mountain Stories podcast. We've been on a bit of a hiatus for the last year, year and a half, um, through COVID and the pandemic and, and all the chaos that has come with that. But we're back, and I'm really excited to be back uh, with this project that has been um, that has been cooking on the stovetop for, for a while now. Uh, my name is Brent Olson. I'm one of the directors of the Institute for Mountain Research at Westminster College. Um, the goal of the Institute is to connect people to mountains and to share the stories of people who share that connection. As part of that mission over the last year, we've been really proud to collaborate with Dr. Shomai Pu on her project, Mountains and Stories, Building Community Among Asian Refugees and Immigrants. For a more thorough overview of the project, uh, you should go back and have a listen to the last episode of the podcast, in which Dr. Pu outlines the inspiration for it, for her goals in collecting the stories of Asian refugees and immigrants in the Salt Lake Valley, and lays out some of the things that she's learned um, in the process of hearing these stories. So over the past six months, we've had a chance to sit down and talk with a cohort of people who are deeply involved in, in changing the social landscape of the Salt Lake Valley um, and who have amazing stories and ideas to share. Thrilled to share the first of those conversations with you today. Our guest today is Z, who is the director of Salt Lake County's Mayor's Office for New Americans. I'll let her go into more details about herself and her stories. My name is Zeman Sao. In Chinese, is Sao Zemin. I direct the Office for New Americans for Salt Lake County Mayor Jenny Wilson. Um, my role as the director for the office, the, well, the role of the office, really is to maximize the potentials of new Americans in, the, in Salt Lake County. Uh, we define new Americans as anyone who's born outside the United States, meaning foreign born. In Salt Lake County, about 12.7% of, of individuals living in the county are foreign born. And we at, anticipate those numbers to increase. Majority of the foreign born population, the largest percentage are uh, um, uh, individuals from Central and South America. However, the Asian community is the fastest growing, and that is in line with the national trend. We also have a large, significant refugee population, and Utah has been seen as a really welcoming place, um, and uh, really is a spotlight in the country where uh, there's so much division in terms of immigration and refugee resettlement that uh, we're able to stand out and be uh, a spirit of hope for um, individuals who are seeking a new future. I was born in China, a small village in Zhongshan, um, Guangdong province. I immigrated, my parents immigrated actually, to American Samoa uh, by Hawaii uh, in the 1990s. I can't remember when, when I was just three years old. Um, they left, or my dad left, and um, was raised by my grandma in China, and I was able to join my parents at the age of 10, and I grew up in American Samoa. I put a small island in the Pacific, a U.S. territory. Uh, my parents uh, had uh, some small businesses there. And really is, is the, um, a very common immigrant experience um, where you go to a new country. And entrepreneurship is the way for you to earn a living and provide for your family. So that's what my, my parents did. Um, throughout the uh, summer months, I spent time with my aunt in San Francisco. Um, and when I was about to go to college, uh, I came to, well, 
I was not planning to, but I end up here in, in Utah. I went to the University of Utah because my parents, my mom, thought that it was a safe place to go. I was ready to go to USC, but it was in central LA, and she didn't think that was a good idea. So I came to Utah instead um, and been here since, oh, when did I came? 1997, so a long time ago. Graduated from the University of Utah with a degree in political science and minor in economics and was very fortunate to have landed a job immediately um, as the assistant director of the Women's Business Center at the Salt Lake Chamber. Um, that uh, uh, entrepreneurship, like I said, is really important to me at the time. And that is something that I really uh, want to believe in and, and hope to provide that opportunity and make it easier for others who are going into this um, field um, and was uh, the assistant director for, for, the, for the Women's Business Center for five years. Some of the, the most rewarding projects that I was able to work on during my years at the, at the chamber was um, initiated a minority business committee, um, bringing in different voices into the Chamber of Commerce at that time was pretty, was that uh, general, there wasn't much diversity, especially in the Board of Governors um, and so forth. I uh, co-staff a minority business committee. Um, we also uh, were able to uh, begin a partnership with the International Rescue Committee to offer Sudanese refugee women the opportunity to start a food, what do you call it? A food business um, at the farmer's market and they sold Sudanese food and was able to help them get that set up. And that really kind of journeys me to what I'm doing right now uh, and my passion for working with immigrant and refugees. My husband is from Vietnam and he's family, not him. His, his brother came here as a refugee from from Vietnam. So has that, uh, that experience as well. And, and from there, well, a couple of years at the at the college, Salt Lake Community College, as an academic advisor and helping refugee and, and, and Asian students there, and then end up in um, in Salt Lake County. Um, won the mayor at the time, Peter Karun, and former Governor Huntsman had a series of town hall meetings to discuss ways to better integrate refugees into our community. As I mentioned, we have a a large refugee population per capita. And one of the recommendations was to um, invest in a position, a full-time position within Salt Lake County government to help with integration. And that was, at that time, was relatively um, progressive. Um, I think we were one amongst one of five communities that where municipal government invested in a resettlement of refugees. Um, refugee resettlement is oftentimes seen as a federal responsibility. We have the uh, State Department who contract with resettlement agencies, and we have two in the state of Utah. We have the International Rescue Committee of Utah and Catholic Community Services contract with those resettlement agencies to provide services to refugees once they resettle in a community. Most of the expenses are paid through either um, the Department of State or the Office of Refugee Resettlement, and there's very little investment from a local standpoint in terms of supporting in refugee resettlement. Uh, but what we've seen and heard is that just by helping a refugee 
well, providing them a, a, a job and a, a housing is not enough. You need to make sure that they're fully integrated into a society and that they are able to uh, maximize their potentials um, and being able to feel like they belong here. And I think that's the integration process that we invest in in, um, in local government. And we took on that uh, spirit um, of welcoming and, and, and uh, providing those wraparound services started with my position as the refugee services liaison and slowly grow into the, the Office for New Americans. Because we also recognize that although refugees, we, we were able to provide services for refugees, there's a larger population of foreign-borns who would benefit from those services. And so um, that is when the Office for New Americans started. I think there is so much complexity with the, um, the migrant experience, right? Um, the immigration experience. Um, it's so complex that it's so hard to to you know, put a blanket over it and say this is the experience of it. I think lots of factors, depending where you come from, um, their experience is different. How you get here is also, you know, what are those push and pull factors that get get individuals to come uh, to the United States? And and those push and pull factors really affect your uh, journey in coming here. I think that one of the big differences I see is in the individuals who come here with um, the this legal status and those who don't. And that's, that is, is really something that, that defines how well you integrate into a community as and how accepted, accepted you are. So I think that plays a, a large factor. And, and in Utah, I think there is also a, um, a wider distinction, a stronger distinction between those who have immigrant status and those who have refugee status. I think there's a lot more um, a, a, a lot more uh, people who are who could identify themselves with the refugee um, journey because of um, how the state of Utah was founded based on persecution. So there's that tie there, and and I I think that there tends to be a lot more acceptance with refugees than it is with immigrants and, and specifically um, undocumented immigrants. The the experiences of of those individuals are very different and challenge. Overall, I think that people who come to the United States um, and uh, to Utah, I think there is, they do feel a sense of welcoming. The pathways of, of the migration of people is, is really interesting too. And, and this is it's not a, a unique to America, right? I um, had the opportunity to participate in a transatlantic exchange program with Germany and was able to study and observe the migration um, of individuals into Germany, and this is in you know five years ago when there was a huge movement of people from from um, from the Middle East going into Germany and other European countries, and I think that that migration experience um, is really not unique to the United States. I think um, the United States has, because of of how it's founded, I think that it's more in that embedded into a system, but. We see it all over the all over the world today, and, and even within within um, uh, within a country and and within uh, the borders of, of a, uh, a sovereign nation. You know, I think about the acceptance of people and how people move from one place to another, and whether or not 
to make a new home for themselves or the family. And again, those push and pull factors that allow people to go from one place to another. Even going back, I go to China, I visit my grandma every other year or so, because, uh, you know, she kind of, I, she raised me when my parents left. And um, and she refused to come to the United States. She's like, I was born in China. I'm going to stay here. So you guys either you guys come and visit me. Or I'm like, that's it. Um, and he just she just passed away a couple of years ago. So before that, I go back every every two years to visit her in in the rural village um, in China. And you know, it's just observing the growth in China. Right? I left uh, I left China in 1990, 1990, just just after the Tiananmen Square, and so it was like really strange times at that at that time. And seeing how the growth has been and the developments in China is like every time I go back, like I can't recognize it anymore. And this is every two years. But going back to your question about, you know, the migrant migration of people and journey of people, what I have observed even within the China is those post push and pull factors of workers coming from the north to Zhongshan, which is a you know a developing zone at the time, and uh, the Jin capitals, and and they rely on labor from the rural areas, and the migration of those people coming into a small village that is pretty close knit, um, and the acceptance of whether the locals accepting those foreigners coming in, and it just makes you question about you know the acceptance of people is beyond just a, a be beyond just a solvent um, state is even within a, a community and within a society and within a culture and ethnicity of the same people right we're all Chinese I mean I, I know that there's so many different dialects that you speak but people are just not able it's like there's otherness they don't belong into a, a you know a close net village you know there's laws that would disallow them to even like live in some spaces within within the village. And so, yeah, it's, it's a complex, it's very complex. I think it goes back to just the human nature acceptance and who we are and, and what we do is helping people understand, understand, you know, the, 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 the relationships and values of those relationships. And how do you find identities, acknowledging each other's differences, but also acknowledging that we are the same. I always say just go go out and make friends and be authentic in those relationships and talk to people who we haven't talked to before. And, and I think that, that once you do that, there's a lot more commonality than this. I think it's also important to know that why are you doing this? Are you doing this because you feel good that you're actually making a friend who is a person of color? Are you truly enjoying the experience, right? And I think that is something that that I I question all the time. And we have a lot of community members who want to support refugees, for instance. And every every Christmas, um, we get hundreds of phone calls, and not me personally, although I do get phone calls, but to a resettlement agencies. And they said, I want to adopt a family. I want to get them a TV. I need to get them shoes. I need to, you know, how can I be played the secret center thing? It's like, they're not puppies. You can't just adopt them. And you have to think about the consequences of like the expectations you're setting up for a parent. You know, it makes you feel good that you're able to give someone an iPhone or a pair of shoes. 
but what is the expectation you you're setting up for that for that for the parent now that the next year how are they going to keep that up if you buy someone a big tv have you thought about whether or not if they can pay the 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 bills the cable bills if you buy someone a phone it, do they have the ability to keep up with the services and more important than that is like you have to acknowledge that that there is they they have so much assets it's better for you to understand where they are and get to know them for who they are before you just buy something just because when you're doing that you're just making yourself feel good not really necessary building that that authentic relationship that would foster you know building more a better cohesion within a community and society There's so much diversity and complexity, right, um, in individual stories and um, different uh, families who come here. I'm also wondering if you could share with us a little bit more about uh, what are some of the pathways uh, of, uh, I'm hesitant to use the word integrating, because sometimes integrating that means some part of you is lost <laughs> in that process. But for the convenience and for the purpose of communication, I'll use that word, integrating. The past ways of integrating um, to the new environment, let's say that, not necessarily new American culture, because the American culture is diverse in my eyes. Uh, to the new environment, uh, they um, migrated to or immigrated to where, where they find a lot of refuge um, for themselves or for their uh, families. So you mentioned entrepreneurship could be one pathway. What are some of the other pathways? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um... You know, we have seen some successes with some of the programs that we did and um, the, the, how we approach the, you know, using the word integration process of, I think what is successful is being able to acknowledge the assets and the differences that someone brings to a community. Um, I think it has to be a two-way street. You wouldn't be, I don't think an, an individual would feel like they this is their home until they're being welcomed into their home, right? And and more than just welcoming is belonging. You know, do we belong? Do you, do someone feel at the at the at the day at the end of the day? Do you, do you belong here? And people ask me, and I ask myself that question as well. Do I belong here in this in this state, even though I've been here for so long, and you know, represent and work in in government agency, and and you know, I I don't know. I mean, I go to meetings and just until recently I, I began to accept that it's okay that I speak with an accent because I, that was something that that bothered me quite a bit at, at the end I, I, I wouldn't feel like I belong until my accent is gone right and I had to learn to accept no I don't need to I, I belong here even though I speak with an accent and it's okay if I'm in a conversation with high level executives or Policymakers and and all of those things because that's just who I am. But it took a long, long time to get to that point, and I think it, it is is a, a self recognition that it's okay for you to be that way. But also, 
having people in the community who give you those permission to to feel okay, right? And I think that that is something that as a community we need to do is is relax some of the norms that we have set, uh, standards that we have set as a community. That you have to belong, you have to act a certain way, you have to speak a certain way, you have to dress a certain way to be able to belong to a community. And and I think that at this point we're kind of testing those standards. Okay, is that really the standard that you have? Um, we had to put in place and and throughout the 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 the, the history in the United States uh, and the immigrants who come here we always put restrictions on who is american who and who is not american and those are those are arbitrary right a, a community make up those standards why does why do why do Asian Americans always feel like the potential foreigners because the way that they, they look different than Europeans, even though they've been here for generations and even here longer than a lot of others. But we have put into this perspective that in order to be American, you need to have a certain tray. You have to look a certain way. You have to talk a certain way. And and I think that is something that we have to continue to, to evolve um, and be able to be accept accept that America is a country of immigrants, um, and that that the different perspective and different stories is who we are. And I think we forget that is we forget that because that's um, we have allowed the othering of other people since the very beginning of the founding of the of the United States. So. Yeah, I have to I have to say one other thing that about acceptance and integration and feeling like belong and um I have two teenage boys, a nineteen year old and a seventeen year old, and they don't speak Chinese. Um and I just realized maybe five, six years ago when my son came up to me and said, Mom, how come you never taught us Chinese? And they wouldn't learn Chinese and I was like, Why would you learn because, and it makes me question myself, why did I not teach my kids Chinese, right? And in a way, I feel like learning Chinese is, is, is shameful. I don't want them to have the accent that I have. I don't want them to see as like some of the, the um, experiences I have experienced being an immigrant. You're American, you should speak English. And I did not recognize that that was... You know, I come into acceptance that that is the reason why I did not teach my kids Chinese because I don't want to have them to go through some of the the, the challenges that I have, or you know, um, the negative consequences of speaking with an accent or pe- being labeled as the other. You can't do that. And so, anyways, um, so they they don't speak English, and I mean Chinese, and. Um, and in high school, they actually took Arabic instead of Chinese because they're like, you didn't teach me Chinese. I'm just going to learn Arabic now. <laughs> Although my 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 19-year-old um, will be going to school in San Francisco, but not now because the pandemic. Um, and I think he'll have... I think he'll have a different perspective. I think living in San Francisco is definitely very different than living in, in South Lake. And they traveled around the world. I mean, it's not like they've been here. So I'm, I'm glad that in a way that people are able to go out and, and they're able to explore and find their own way. And 
they'll decide what they want to do, but I just have to live up with the guilt that that is why I did not teach them Chinese when they were little. You mentioned accents. I speak English with an accent. <laughs> yes, I do. Um, so do you, what languages do you speak at home? So do you speak English? You mentioned your husband is Vietnamese. No, we speak English. Oh, interesting. <laughs> we speak English. My Chinese, my Chinese. I speak Cantonese. I took classes at the U to speak Mandarin, and I'm I'm just I decide I'm horrible in languages. Like I speak Chinese with a uh, English accent, and my grammar is terrible. In I I'm just I decide I'm just bad in in language. I speak my 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 village dialect in Cantonese, and then um, my Mandarin, and then English, and I did speak Samoan for a little bit, but. But I'm never good in any of those languages, so I struggle to find words to communicate. And I don't think that is because I'm an immigrant learning, coming here to the United States and learning a different language. I think I just struggle. Even in China, I struggled <laughs> to find the right words. So, um, yeah, and and that's what I come to understand. Um, you know, that it's okay. This is not because of I, I speaking with an accent not because I am an immigrant coming here. It's just I'm terrible in languages. I can never win. And I just need to accept that. <laughs> no, my, my husband was born in Vietnam, but he is actually Chinese. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we speak Cantonese. Um, so his family speaks Cantonese. And and it's funny because in in Vietnam, they were merchants. Um, and they live in a Chinese quarter of Vietnam. Um, and we went back to, we went to his old house in Vietnam uh, a few years back. And um, so he's fa he was he was um, pro prohibited prohibited from learning Vietnamese when he was in Vietnam because they were Chinese. So they had to go to a Chinese school. They had to talk Chinese, and their parents said you can learn Vietnamese. So he learned Vietnamese after he came here in Utah. <laughs> so he speaks Vietnamese, but he did not learn it in Vietnam. He learned it here. Um, so yeah, so he's, we speak Cantonese. When we, when we don't want our kids to know what we're talking about, we can speak Cantonese. That, maybe that was the other reason why I didn't tell him. And then he speaks um, Chiu Zhou. It's a different, another dialect. That's why his family. And then, yeah, and then he speaks Vietnamese. But I, I don't I don't know any Vietnamese. My son is dating someone who, who is Vietnamese, and so my my husband and and his girlfriend speaks in Vietnamese. When he when they don't want to know, want us to know what they're talking about. <laughs> I really appreciate the work you have been doing. And just to add a personal note to what you said, uh, I was born in China too, um, but I took a very different um, route to come to the United States. I came here as a graduate student. I remember, uh, yeah, I had a lot of cultural shock when I came here too. So I'm curious to know, uh, you immigrated to the United States at the age of 10. You were so young, right? And uh, it was back in the 1990s, early 1990s. I think the cultural climate 
uh, was very different in that time. So I'm curious to uh, know that growing up in the United States and, and aging, which is a minority, right? What was the biggest challenge for you uh, growing up? For me, it was a cultural shock. So I think for you, it might be a little different. Yeah, I think for me, it was very different. I, I grew up in American Samoa. Like I said, it's a small island territory. Uh, you know, we, they spoke English, but they also have their own culture, which is Samoan. When I first got to American Samoa, I think there's maybe a dozen Chinese families there. Um, so we are kind of forced to integrate fast. It's not like you could go to a Chinese restaurant. There, there is none. The only one is the one that my, my dad and my mom operate. And in fact, my dad didn't know how to cook until <laughs> he immigrated and, and then start making up recipes there. So I think it was a, a little bit different in my perspective in terms of growing up. You know, there was there was a lot of challenges and obstacles that my parents faced. You know, they were being taken advantage of uh, because of their immigration status. And even, even till now, I mean, thinking back on where we were as Chinese Americans struggles, I would compare it to actually, you know, the Chinese American struggles, even though it was in the 90s. But I think my parents' experience was more similar to the Asian American struggles of, of even the 1920s, because there was just, there was very little support system in place in a, in a small island like that. I think that when you go into, and I think there's pros and cons with, um, with living in a smaller space. And I think you see that here, as well in, in Utah, I think that there is a lot more attention paid to Asian Americans in more gateway cities and states like California. I, like I said, my, my, most of my family lives in California in San Francisco. And so to them, you know, even my aunt, she didn't need to learn English, right? It's just like, who needs to learn English when you just go to Chinatown and everyone speaks the language? So there's a hyper awareness of the Asian American in, in those uh, places. But they also have, um, and you get a lot of pushback as well because of the hyper-awareness. Um, but they also have systems in, and infrastructure to support them, right? They have organizations that have been formed for decades to help support um, those individuals in, in, in um, transitioning into the American society. Whereas I think that in Utah and places like Salt Lake, where we don't have that infrastructure in place, but yet we don't have the hyper focus on you know the pros and cons of being Asian American. In fact, I was just being interviewed by a reporter yesterday about the trend in Asian crimes throughout the United States, and we really haven't seen that here um, in Utah. There's maybe one or two cases that we have you know informally being shared that. In some a couple of restaurants, there were some racial slurs um, that is being inflicted into in, into some of the restaurant owners, but not in not in the in 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 the way that we have seen in other places. To me, it was it was I did not ex I experienced it, but I did not analyze and really think through my experience until I until you know just recently and being able to go back and say, oh wow, that was that was not okay. That was. <laughs> That was terrible, in fact. And I, I, would, I would also add to that transitioning from American Samoa to 
to Utah was more of a cultural shock to me than it was the other way. <laughs> Just because, uh, you know, I associate the United States with my experience growing up um, visiting my aunt in San Francisco and moving from San Francisco to Utah was was a cultural shock because um, we have such a, uh, a population that's so different. In fact, I remembered um, needing to take a Greyhound bus to to San Francisco so I can have my Chinese food fix in the 90s. Um, but, you know, I, I think that has changed now. How do you spend your spare time? So do you go hiking in the mountains, skiing? What are the kinds of recreational activities that you and your family um, are doing? Utah, I would say, is slowly growing on me. I prefer the beach. I prefer not to wear any shoes and have my flip-flops and <laughs> jump to the beach um, all the time. So coming to Utah is definitely a challenge. And I, you know, it took a I'm still getting used to it, but I do. We I do love nature, and I think um, I I can't really say that same with my teenage boys anymore. When they were growing up, they were forced to go to camping and stuff with me, and now they're like, I want to go hiking with you, mom. That's <laughs> that's not fun anymore. Um. So yeah, I enjoy nature, and um, I try to get out as much as I can going hiking. Um, I was able to uh, learn how to do rock climbing, and so I do rock climbing when I have the opportunity um, to go out and do that. But mostly, in, uh, you know, the pandemic, uh, I've been doing it indoors. I don't ski. I don't like it. It's too cold. <laughs> um, but I do love camping and fishing, so we go out and fish quite a bit in the waters. I'm, I'm also a big um, gardener, so in the summertime we have a, you know, we I have a really big garden, and grow all kinds of vegetables and stuff, and and um, and also had I also have chickens, so I have five chickens. It, it, it's that I think it's that combination of living in a city like Utah, where you could have the city, but also have kind of the experiences of, um, you know, country life in a way being able to collect your own eggs and have a big garden. And um, and I think that's that's really, really great. And and that I think that also helps me get connected to my roots, um, you know, growing vegetables that my, my grandma grow and being able to share those vegetables with friends here and introducing them to, to um, the different flavors. What, what did she grow and what do you grow? Yeah, so we... <laughs> Well, I try to grow stuff. Sometimes it doesn't really work out. <laughs> but um, you know, the the mustard greens and, and the Choi family, the Bob Choi's and and things like that. I I love mustard green. I only could grow certain mustard greens. I couldn't grow the big mustard greens that that um, you could find. I think that the soil and the weather here is very different. What do you call it? The um, There's the melons, the the, the Chinese melons, um, the loofah. I, I I was very success, successful one year growing loofah, loofah those long vegetables, um, but then they stopped growing. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, but so I, I I test different things. I 
spiked seeds from, um, you know, some Asian seeds from a, a, a company in Vermont. And yeah, I just experiment. Um, pink, pink color celery was my last experiment. It didn't grow very well either. <laughs> yeah, I understand that like uh, growing food and vegetables is so like very closely tied to our early memories, right? Um, growing up and the food uh, our parents and grandparents cook. So I can understand that. And I sometimes crave for um, you know Chinese vegetables. Uh, that I was used to too when I was in China. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you, um, where did you go, like fishing and hiking and doing other kinds of uh, recreational activities? Because how come I have never met you? <laughs> so I'm at day hikes. Because <laughs> I go on day hikes very often uh, in these three canyons, Milk Creek Canyon, Big Cottonwood, and Little Cottonwood. And on my day hikes, I rarely, rarely, rarely see Asians hiking. Uh, I was wondering if... Uh, uh, we are going out there at different times uh, where is it true that not many Asian Americans uh, are enjoying an outdoor activities like Americans do? Um, what is your observation? You have lived here much longer, so I might have a misconception. I feel like I'm in, in between identities sometimes just because I came to the U.S. when I was pretty young and if I go back to China, they think that I'm totally Americanized at this point. Um, but I, I, I agree in some sense that there is, I think for the more Chinese who, who in I think it depends on what age you are. Like my, my nephews and my nieces, they love hiking. But, you know, I, I think that they're second generation and they're more American than, than that. But looking at my sister-in-laws and my husband's the youngest, uh, in the family of seven, so you know there is an age difference between me and my 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 in laws. Um, I don't see them going out. Um, the outdoors is not something that they are accustomed to. Not until recently that they began to, um, go out and camp. I think it's a cultural thing too with camping. Uh, why would you want to go in the middle of the woods, um, without any toilets and anything like that? And to me and my husband, we're like that's. That's great, you know. Why would you camp in a campsite with all the facilities that you need? We would rather go to the to where there's no not an established campsite. Um, but that mentality is very different, right? Why would you go hiking when you can stay home and watch TV or something like that? Because they've seen it as something that is going out into the community fields. I think as part of like, I don't know exactly how to word it in a way. It's not seen as, um, as uh, what's the word I'm looking for now? It's not something that people would like, a choice would do. You do, you do that if you're forced into doing it, not because you want to. Right? It's just, I, I use the analogy of um, 
uh, riding your bicycle, you know, and when I was going in China, everyone had to ride the bike to everywhere. And so now that you have a car, why the heck would you want to ride a bike? It takes so much time and energy out of you. And I think that mentality is still there a little bit. And I think that people are changing now. I mean, I'm seeing, I'm seeing my in-laws going biking for, just for fun, for biking. But I think that there is also this pushback, like, no, we don't need to do that anymore. We're like, we're events now. We have cars. Um, and the same thing with, you know, going hiking in places like that. Why would I want to do that? I only do that when I have to collect woods, firewoods and come back and use that. Um, so, yeah, I think I think it's, it's a, um, I think it's a genera- generational issue rather than that. Uh, just, you know, with me rock climbing, it's like, why would you put yourself in harm's way? And I have gotten, you know, some wet flags. It's like, you shouldn't be doing that. But uh, like I say, I'm Americanized, so I just turn around and it's like, see ya. <laughs> this community project uh, is anchored in mountains. Okay. I emailed you about that. Uh, my question is, what's a mountains? mean for you so we have lived in the in the valley surrounded by mountains i think mountains means different things to me mountains growing up in china the mountains represents not wilderness i always associate the mountains with graves because in china you bury the people and i think they have that they bury the people in 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 the mountains and you, the only time you really go to the mountains is doing um, memorial, Chinese memorial, where you, you know, it's a big celebration, you go in and you do that. And that's the only association with me and the mountains when I was growing up is, you know, that's where the ancestors are buried. That experience was very different than the mountains here. And the mountains here in Utah represents kind of freedom to, away from from society and being able to be to be with nature. And I think that the concept of nature is also very different too, between the Chinese culture and the Western culture. And I think part of it is just because I grew up during the communist era, era where there was just a different, I think a different perception of the mountains and nature and all of those things. For me, the mountains here just really does represent home because I've been here for so long and just, you know, um, freedom to be just be in the wild and that's that's the important thing too going back to your questions hearing each other's stories that's how you get to learn and know who who is amongst you and so that you'll be able to understand them more for sharing her stories and thank you for tuning in. Our next storyteller will be Emilio Manuela Camus. Emilio serves as the current president of OCA Utah. 
the Vice President of Education and Culture for OCA National, Founder and uh, Director of the Filipino American National Historical Society, Utah, Treasurer for Mana Academy, and uh, Director of the Filipino American Association of Utah. On Saturday, June 26th, we will hold a community building cultural event in Fitz Park, South Salt Lake, bringing the group of storytellers together with the broader community. We will enjoy a lion dance blessing ceremony, conversations, and Asian food. You can RSVP for the event through the social media of, uh, of OCA Utah, where the social media of Promises also Salt Lake. Thanks to the Whiting Foundation Public Engagement Programs for supporting the project with a seed grant. And thank you all for listening to another episode of the Mountain Stories podcast. We'll be back next week with another storyteller, and we'll have episodes all the way through October and events here in Salt Lake City that go along with that. Our theme music for the podcast is brought to you by Pixie and the Party Grass Boys. As Naomi used to say all the time, they are awesome and you should check them out. Thanks for listening. <laughs>